This morning is Palm Sunday. We are talking about the, that, that day in history when Christ came in to Jerusalem. And, you know, one of the ways to look at that is like grand entrances. I, um, you know, in a few weeks from now, some of you are going to be graduating. You're going to put on a cap and a gown and you're going to march in and there's going to be all this music playing and everyone's celebrating you. You're kind of the object of attention. But I'm sorry, while you might be graduating, there is an even better entrance. And that's when myself and a young man is standing up here and those doors open and that music starts playing and that bride comes through that door. Now that's an entrance. A woman in all of her beauty and she'll be escorted usually by her father or someone and they come into this room and every eye is looking at her. You know, by the time that all the bridal party is up here, everyone's done with the bridal party, and they're craning their necks, looking over their shoulders, looking for that person, that woman, that bride to walk in, and she walks in, and every eye turns. Doesn't matter what the guy looks like. He's chopped liver at this point. Doesn't matter at all. The husband, I mean, her father might be escorting her in. Doesn't matter about him either. They're looking at her. And what she looks like. And they're enjoying her. And at that moment, that day, I mean, like a lot of people think every day is all about them. I tell my brides all the time when I'm working with them, that moment really is your moment. You know, this is the first time and the only time in your life probably where everything's about you right now. And so she walks in. She has a grand entrance. For years, perhaps, at least for months, everything had been talked about. Money's been set aside. There have been fittings and sizings and all kinds of plans being made for that moment to happen. And so in that moment, she walks in, and it really is all about her. Well, this day, there is a, is, well, this day in history commemorates a day with a grand entrance. Not the most elaborate, but definitely perhaps one of the most important grand entrances. Oh, wait a minute. I started, I started to say children... That's right. I'm sorry about that. If you have your clipboards in here today, the word for the day is bride. I almost forgot about that. So I've already said it five times. Count that as five times on your clipboard. Five times. Sorry about that. Really messed you up. All right. So today does commemorate that day when Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. He arrived on a Sunday, we're told, and in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record the events of that week and the events of this event, this event we're talking about today. Today, we're going to be in Luke 19. If you want to open up your Bibles or your device to Luke 19, we're reading it from that, that particular passage. So beginning in verse 28, Luke 19. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead and ascended to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he reached Bethpage and Bethany, near the mount of what is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which you will enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever set. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, thus you shall say, The Lord has need of it. Now, pause for a moment. Let me just make a note. Everything that is happening this week is happening with intention and the foreknowledge of Jesus. Everything that happens, he knows about it. He has orchestrated it down to every single detail. So whether it was, whether there's a cult 
tied up waiting on him, whether there's a room, because that's what he says later on in one of the other Gospels, go, you'll find a man, there's a room that is waiting on you, prepare the Passover there. All the way down to saying, one of you will betray me. All the way down to saying, I will be handed over to the Gentiles, and I will be mocked, and I will be flogged, and I'll be crucified. All of that is known ahead of time. Keep that in the back of your mind as you consider that he arrives into this city on this time. Matter of fact, in Luke 18, the very previous chapter, it's the sixth warning that Jesus has given his disciples about what's about to happen as they come into Jerusalem. In verse 31 of chapter 18, Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled and he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him and on the third day he will rise again. The whole Bible, the whole Bible, when you, when you look at the book, you know, here we are, here we are, At, the, at that moment when he comes into the city. And all of this has been written pointing to this moment. All of this has been written pointing toward this moment. It has been driving toward this moment when he enters the city. Up to this time, think about it. How many times have you read where he says he's healed somebody, he's done something, and he says, don't say anything about this. Just go on about your business. Don't say anything about this. And up to this time, he has never, ever yet said, I am the Messiah. But it is this story right here, it is this event right here that that changes. Matter of fact, you don't have to flip back there. But a matter of fact, in Matthew 21, he, he, he it's records the same story. But what's interesting is, prior to him doing this, he restores the sight of two blind men. And what do they do? They call him in verse, 21, in verse 31 of chapter 20 of Matthew. The multitude sternly told them to be quiet, and they, the two blind men. But they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. There is only one person who's going to be called son of David. And it is going to be that one time ultimate king who's fulfilling David's own prophecy about someday there is coming another king who will free us. Another king who is far greater than myself or any other's. And so there's only one person who's ever going to be called the son of David, and it will be the Messiah. And then this happens with these two blind men. But then immediately the next thing that happens is the, the crowd picks up Zechariah 9. And in Matthew 21, 5, they say, Say to this daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the, for the, the foal of a beast of burden. They say further, and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are calling him the Messiah, and he doesn't stop them. They are calling him the Messiah, and he admits to it, even in, just in being there. He is stepping forth, and for the first time in his ministry, he's stepping forth and saying, I am the Messiah. 
And if ever the clock was ticking leading up to it, all of a sudden it is ticking really fast now with him being called the Messiah. And so what is happening here? These people are hearing him. They're calling him that. They're not calling him that because they think he's coming in to save them from their sins. And this is the thing that often we struggle with when we read this. Last week after the service, someone said, I hope that next week when you talk about the Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, you'll explain how is it that those people could celebrate him on Sunday and crucify him on Friday? And the, and the answer to that is something that we do all the time ourselves, but the answer to that is he showed up on Sunday and they thought that he was going to liberate them from the Romans. And so you could even read, you could even read this entry, this, this, the things they were saying about him. You could read it and, and you would find that they were, saying, um, they were saying, you know, celebrating him, saying, welcome Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're thinking about a king who's going to come and overthrow Rome and sweep them out of the country and reestablish the glory and the grandeur of the temple worship and everything they, they've been promised. They think that Jesus is him and he's going to do it now. So why is it that by Friday they scream crucify him? Why is it they scream, they go from screaming Hosanna, Hosanna, Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord to screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, only days later. Throughout Jewish history, they were found at many, many times, and God warned them over and over and over again. One of the commandments was, do not make for yourself an image do not put another, don't make yourself an, uh, something you craft. Don't make a wooden idol or a molten idol. Don't do that and worship that. For I am the, I am the Lord your God. And yet anytime the people get disillusioned with him, that's what they run to. Moses goes on the mountain for 40 days. They get disillusioned with him. Ah, we've been driven out here. We've been left out here to suffer and die. Why didn't we just stay and die in Egypt? And so the first thing they do is make a golden calf. We'll create a God of our own. We'll create a God of our own. And that's what they did this week. They expected him, even Gary even alluded to it, they expected him to show up and begin this liberation, this rebellion that would free them of the dominion of an occupying force and set in place this great kingdom. And when it didn't happen, when it wasn't happening fast enough, they immediately turned to saying, we want someone else. We'll take another king. But we do that all the time. In less dramatic fashion, though. Matter of fact, I, I love to, if you haven't already seen it, there's um, a set of documentaries that have been produced over the past five to six years, and they're called American Gospel. Any of you familiar with them? All right, thank you very much. I like seeing those hands. Praise the Lord. I see that hand. I see that hand. Every pastor likes to say that. I see that hand. So they're called American Gospel. I'd really encourage you to look them up. You can get them, you can get them off of their website, American Gospel, or you can see it on um, uh, Prime and several of the other streaming services. The second one is called Christ Crucified. In Christ Crucified, they're exploring this phenomenon. It's not really a phenomenon. It's something that's been happening, but it's just captured new attention, and it's been called something. This phenomenon of deconstructing faith. 
And all that means is, is people who said, I don't really want to believe in the Bible anymore. I'm going to believe in something else. And they're exploring that thing. It's nearly a three-hour documentary. It's not just like a, it's a multiple tub of popcorn kind of documentary. You know what I'm saying? And what they do is, is they, they take orthodox faith and they compare it to the stories and the reasons why other people are walking away. In our area here, there is a particular um, noted author and theologian who, uh, of, a, of the previous generation, was well noted, spoke everywhere, taught at one of the local universities. His son came up in his, in his shadow and also started a ministry, also spoke everywhere, also wrote books and everything. He came to a place several years ago and he said, I don't believe this anymore. And in the documentary, he says this. He says, I didn't like the God of the Bible so I decided on a different God for myself. His exact quote was, why would you worship a God you don't like when you could fashion your own? And that's what he did. See, that statement right there is the exact thing that happened 2,000 years ago. This is not the God I want. I don't want one who's talking about spiritual sin. I don't know about that. I want a God that's gonna free us from the Romans. And if you're not it, I'll crucify you. If you're not it, I'll create a molten image. If you're not it, I've got gold sitting around waiting to be made into a calf. And just like this guy said and all the other guys in that documentary, if you're not it, I'll find someone to take your place. And they do it. And they're doing it all the time. Churches in the past 10 to 15 years, maybe longer, and actually it's been going on for a long time, but it has accelerated as of late. But churches are being changed all the time. Pastors, Christians are changing all the time because as our culture continues to shift dramatically one particular direction, trying to drag the church, trying to drag Christians, trying to drag the Bible with it, they're saying, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. I'm going to go to this church who teaches something different because that guy and that Bible, this church who holds by this thing, that's not what I believe. I'll find something different to believe. And so whether it's on sexual identity, whether it's on race, whether it's on whatever it may be, because there's a multitude of issues in our culture today, whatever it is, they're like going, I don't like this God. I'll find someplace else to find a God that I do like, and I'm going to hang out with him. And so it's not like it's a unique thing that happened 2,000 years ago. We're still doing it all the time. We do it in our own lives. In a small way, let me just point it out to you. We can be in this service, worshiping, singing these songs, loving Jesus, and get in the car and cuss our kids because they're screaming. Has that never happened? Oh, yeah, it's happened. Maybe you didn't cuss them, but you probably weren't very tenderly affectionate to them. We stray so quickly. And fortunately, though, for, I would say for my friends that I know of us, we also, though, repent of our sin. <clears throat> we ask him to forgive us, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess them. And we keep moving on. But you see how hard it is for us to remain loyal and faithful to him in just our everyday life. So it's not hard 
in my opinion, to see how they rejected him in that day. And it's not hard in this day to see how people reject him here too. We hold, what we are involved in, if you've professed Christ as your savior, we are involved in a process of extricating all of our old values, all of our old sin, all of our old worldview. We're involved in this process of extricating that out of our life so that day by day by day by year, over the course of time, we are demonstrating that we are a new creation visibly to others. But over the course of time, we're constantly having that old stuff washed out of us, rinsed out of us, changed out of us. Over our time in the word, over our time in prayer, over our time in obedience, we're being changed. But there's this time and place in our lives so often where we come to something we go, that's not something I'm willing to give up. That's not something I want to say no to. And that's that place where we are just like those Jews of 2,000 years ago, where I don't like that, I want something different. And we're confronted with a decision we have to make about whether we're willing to follow God. And, and even where Luke and so many of the other gospel writers and Paul write about that we deny ourselves and we lay aside all the things we want to follow him in obedience, to follow him to wherever he may lead, to be whatever he wants us to lead us into. Things that we might not choose for ourselves, but we're forced to trust that he knows better that he loves us, that he'll guide us and take us to places that are best and right for us, even if it's painful. This whole story of Jesus coming into the city, it is, it is, this, it is not like it's a new story, but it's like throughout the Gospels, we're being introduced to the God-man who says that he came to save the world from their sins, John 3, 16. He's come, he says, I have come that I might redeem man from their sin and provide a way for them to have forgiveness of sins and enter into relationship with God. He's been saying that. But when he enters the city on this day 2,000 years ago, what he's just done is he's amped that up. He has, he has put a hot burning light on his mission. And we've been seeing the character of Jesus. And that is what has attracted so many millions of people to Jesus, to Christianity. It's not always been us necessarily, but it has been Jesus. And as people have gotten to know him and see him and see the character of Jesus demonstrated, they've been drawn to him. And I want to say that in this passage, we see the character of Jesus magnified in such a way that it's hard to just turn away from it. Open up, stand your Bible in, Matt, in Luke 19 and continue to read just past what we read. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't even finish reading it. Let me, let's finish reading it. So, and um, pick up in verse 32. And those who, those who sinned aware, they found uh, it just as he had said. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? He said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their garments on the ground and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice with all the miracles which they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you that if these become silent, the stones would cry out. Now, that right there is a sermon in itself, isn't it? You know? But let's read on. And when he approached the city, he wept. Stop. Ponder what he's saying there. He wept. Go back to the idea of a bride. What bride ever walked down an aisle and looked at the man, the groom, and said, this man is bad for me. This man is going to harm me. This man is going to murder me. And yet, as he enters into Jerusalem, if you want to keep that bride theme going just a little bit, he comes into Jerusalem knowing exactly what's going to happen to him. And what does he do? That verse we just read says he wept. Not over what's about to happen to him, but over what's about to happen to that city. He wept over that city, it says. Saying, if you had known in this day even you, the things which make, make for peace, but now they have, they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave you one stone on, on top of another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation." He's arrived in the city of Jerusalem. And if you can imagine, like, you know, if, you, if you've ever been there, if you've even just looked at the geography of it, he comes down from the Mount of Olives, he crosses that valley, and he comes up in the Temple Mount area, and as he begins to see it, he looks down on it and he goes, you're going to reject me. And what's going to happen because of that? I weep over it. And he speaks about how they will pull down stones upon stones, and if you go there today to the Temple Mount area, you'll find stones that in AD 74, I believe my date is correct, in AD 74, the Romans tore down the city and the stones from the wall have been left there all these centuries later as a memory, as a monument, whether the people agreed or not, as a monument to the prophecy of Jesus in this day coming true that they tore down that city with all the people in it. He understood what was about to happen. He understood what it meant to those people. And he wept over it. The rejection of the Messiah by his own people. One of the things for us to consider is the character of the king. We as a nation, we as a world, let's just go there. are dying for leadership that has its people in its best interest. That has character that loves its people and would do anything to take care of them. And here is Jesus, who's about to suffer at the, at the greatest extent for his people. His character is demonstrated in this moment and all the moments to come for that week. The character of the king who suffers for his people. The triumphant entry is the beginning of a week 
of the white-hot laser that magnifies the character of Christ. There is a discussion that often happens, and you'll find it if you, ever, if you watch that particular documentary that I'm talking about. I hope you do. That Jesus willingly went through everything that happened this week, knowing that by the end of the week, he would have suffered. And just like he says, I would be spit upon, I would be flogged, I would be crucified. He willingly suffered for the creation that spurned him. He willingly suffered for the creation that spurned him. That is the character of the king that we serve as Christians. And it's that character of the king that we serve as Christians that should spark our loyalty, that should spark our faithfulness, that should spark our worship, that should spark our joy that we consider his character. So us, believers, fellow Christians, this story, this week, should help us to understand the character of the king and should breed in us greater loyalty, greater faithfulness, greater self-denial. May it be true. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you that you sacrificed your son on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you for the great suffering that you willingly and knowingly took on. May we see it, experience it, acknowledge it in a deeper way this week that we may know you, love you, and follow you more faithfully because of it. And it's in your name we pray, amen.